Hey everybody, it's Joe. It's Wednesday night and I'm here in the Mission at the Chronicle Talks primary 2020 event with my colleagues Audrey Cooper, Phil Mateer, and Heather Knight. We recorded for an episode of Fifth and Mission podcast, but we're going to play it for you right now as a bonus episode of It's All Political. Enjoy. I'm Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and today on Fifth Mission, a live episode for you. We recorded it at our sold-out event Wednesday night, Chronicle Talks Primary Elections 2020. I was joined by Heather Knight, Phil Mateer, and Joe Garofoli, plus a sellout crowd at Manny's in San Francisco. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Chronicle Chats Primary 2020. Good job. Uh, Thank you all for coming here tonight. And thank you to Manny and everyone at Manny's. You have done an amazing job of fostering civil discourse in San Francisco. And that makes you one of my very favorite people. So pundits are calling 2020 the year that could change American politics forever. And that means there are big decisions before you all. And you're here tonight because you take that responsibility seriously, as do we at the Chronicle. As I like to tell everyone, there is no such thing as a right to an uninformed opinion. Right? (laughs) Don't you hate that? So without any further delay, I want to introduce my colleagues that are with me tonight. First up, our Hold No Punches political or San Francisco columnist. You know her from her work uncovering corruption in City Hall, but also for celebrating what's so great about the city with our ongoing series, Total SF, Heather Knight. And our next columnist is coming to you straight from his sickbed. Sorry, front row. Um, Yeah, that tells you a heck of a lot about how much he cares about politics and making sure you can sort fact from fiction. Joe Garofoli. Who is double fisting it with tea and some... Ginger ale. Ginger ale, sure, Joe. (laughs) And finally, he is known as the hardest working man in the West Coast media, the guy who knows everyone and where they've buried the bodies, Phil Mateer. So this has been a slow news week. Uh, So much has happened in the last 48 hours. I barely know what's going on. So Joe... um, Let's start with you. What did we learn last night from the president's State of the Union speech? Uh, you mean the reality show TV uh, State of the Union? We will never. He, I think, the president remade uh, State of the Union speeches. We will, he, we will never think of them in the same way last night. Now, aside from the fact check, fact errors, you know, uh, his stuff about the economy, uh, the economic. Uh, growth started under the Obama era. Uh, the uh, he said the um, oil production is at an all-time high. It's, it actually was uh, several years ago. That aside, um, he, he the thing was that he does touch people, and he touches his base. And if there was any doubt that this is going to be a base election, it was erased last night because that uh, speech. I mean, we heard members of Congress saying four more years, four more years. It was a rally. It was not what it was intended, the State of the Union was intended to be. Uh, I think Thomas Jefferson um, said back Thomas in the day, Jefferson said, you get a medal and you get a yeah, medal and you get right. a medal. But he said, he said um, maybe we should uh, have the president submit the State of the Union in writing so that someone who was very accomplished, a great speaker, could not you know, manipulate the process or, or what have you. And so we saw that last night. I mean, he, the president is a compelling figure. Uh, and he was very compelling last night, aside from the fact errors and <laughs> aside from the, you know, giving Rush Limbaugh the, the Medal of Honor. <laughs> uh, for all the stuff that he said, that's, that's a whole other podcast. But, but y- y- you said it was a, a rally to the base. And Phil, I, I want to know what you think about that comment by Joe. And if you, if you want to just nudge him, you can do that, too, because you're sitting right next to each other. But it also seemed like he was trying to reach out to the two people in America who are undecided in this race by trying to extol his legislative accomplishments, too. Do you think that this is a winning strategy for Trump? 
winning uh, remains to be seen. Uh, Donald Trump has made a career of upsetting the American political process by losing. He lost the media first time out. He lost the middle. He lost the left. He insulted everyone. He was doomed. He was never going to get the nomination. He was every week. People are criticizing the media for paying attention to him. And every week, what they did during 2016 was criticize him. Say, can you believe this? He's a liar. He's this. He's that. This guy knows what he's doing. He has a gut instinct for it. He doesn't have a corner on the market, by the way, of stretching the facts at a State of the Union address. All right, let's be honest about that. George Bush, uh, Jimmy Carter, you name them, they do it. I thought, to me, it's the biggest political ad we allow, and, and I'm not even sure why we cover it, because that's what it's always been. Oh, yeah. And okay? there's, there's no bump in the polls you get from a State of the Union. But this is a guy that if he sees a camera, he's going to use it, and he sees an opportunity, he's going to use it. So last night, yes, it was a tour de force Donald Trump. He didn't just draw a line in the sand. He bulldozed it. Okay? He hasn't changed one inch, and he's also touting the economy. Are you better off now? But the real text of last night's speech was, you're right. It's a 50-50 split of approval and disapproval of Donald Trump, but he's already on the next move. This isn't about Donald Trump. This is going to be about the Democratic nominee. That's what he is going to make this race about. It is going to be to middle America. You got me. You're still here. You're doing okay. Are you willing to gamble on them? And that's what you saw on issue after issue. I've done this. The subtext is, what are they going to do? And that's what we're seeing played out in Iowa and New Hampshire. And it's a little strange right now. I mean, when the first results bombed, right? Yeah. Did we get results? We're up at 85%. I'm surprised in the middle he didn't quip, hey, Democrats, nice job in Iowa. (laughs) You know? I mean, talk about opening up for problems. Oh, this is the biggest thing since Iowa. That's going to be the punchline going forward. So, okay, let's talk about the great state of Iowa. Um, I can say that because I'm from Kansas. We always make fun of the Iowans. Um, what, What did we learn from Iowa did anyone really, can anyone win at this point, or have we all just moved along? Well, I, the, the thing you're, the, Iowa's good for one thing, and that's a bounce. You're like, you can bring up someone who's an unknown, or it can give someone who was maybe, you know, halfway, more of a middling candidate, and more of a jump. But since we're still counting the ballots, no one can say, I won Iowa. Buttigieg. Uh, said, I won Iowa, even before the votes were counted, <laughs> which was, God, that's ballsy. And, um, uh, but he, but no, so the, the thing that it's good for, it didn't happen. Uh, by the time, you know, it, so after the State of the Union, we, or after Iowa, we had the State of the Union, then we had, uh, we getting played off here? What's going on? <laughs> That's my, my walk off. That's good. Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> So it's going to be lost. And then we're already talking. Then there'll be a primary. <laughs> I mean, that, this was Iowa comes to the mission, it's right? A, it's, it's appropriate because that's kind of what everybody did to Iowa. Like, play the walk-off mu- music, Iowa. Nobody cares who won it anymore. Uh, I, I have a question. How many watched the Iowa quote-unquote returns last night or yesterday afternoon on CNN? Did any of you watch you, you the watched returns it? on CNN? You didn't? No, kind of. How many stayed up late to watch uh, as late as you could after midnight? There was a moment, I'm not kidding you, there was a moment when the anchors were in front of this clock. And the clock said, it's two hours and 42 minutes till the expected returns will be released. They had a countdown clock. Yeah. The point being, Iowa is, we are in trouble in some ways because of cable news, which has become basically Trump Democratic news. That's it. You know, there's nothing else going on in the world. There's nothing else going on in America. This every night, it's this. And it's almost like commentators on a reality show. They're playing into the reality show. And now the Democratic nomination is becoming the reality show. And so Iowa, which is, you know, people in a gymnasium saying, I'm for this, for this, all this has taken on this, this monumental, like Joe said, it was a bounce. Last night, it was the apocalypse. You know, is Joe Biden dead? He's gut punched. Isn't that his, 
his comeback. Yes. He's he, said he admitted he was gun punched. Uh, Buttigieg won. Bernie won. Who did what? And now they're going on to the second most populous state in the union, New Hampshire. I think another thing we learned from Iowa, besides that the Democrats can't even count the votes, was that turnout was not that great. So that is worrisome for the Democrats in San Francisco. We assume that everybody's riled up about this election. Everyone's going out to the polls. We couldn't care about anything more, but that's not the case in a lot of parts of the country. Yeah, they were expecting uh, upwards of uh, 230,000 people to participate in the caucuses, uh, which would be record-setting. That'd be beyond uh, 2008 when Obama was there. There's a lot of excitement, and you know it's going to be more like 2016, which is 175,000, 180,000. And again, that's how many people we're talking has such an outsized influence in who we choose to be the president. I mean, can we really say that that means nobody's going to turn out, though? Because the Iowa caucuses seem like, frankly, a pain in the ass. There's a if huge pain in the ass. You have to devote several hours of your day to hang out in a gym, you know, with, uh, with your... Or, or, I didn't or, even or, want to do that in high school. So, like, <laughs> doing it after a long work day doesn't seem like any fun at all. So... Uh, Voter security. I mean, the first, like when I started getting the notifications on my phone that says there's a problem, there's quality control issues, my first thought was everybody who's worried about their vote counting is now super paranoid. And we had this discussion in our morning news meeting, and your editor, Joe, told me 12 reasons why it had nothing to do with voter security. Does that even matter? I mean, will it ultimately discourage people when they see that, like, maybe we can't even count votes? Will it discourage Iowa? people from voting? Yeah. I don't know about that. I think it's going to have everybody on alert. Uh, well, a couple of things to remember about Iowa, and I'm probably going to repeat some of the things that my, my boss, Trapper Burns, said, was that uh, Iowa is, number one, it's, that's, that was held by the, done by the party. Here, we're actually, there are professionals. <laughs> the season, they, we have, but, it's like, run presumably, by the, the DNC State, but, wants Iowa to not look like what it looks like now either. Oh, it's embarrassing. It's, it's, it's chaos. And, and what chaos does not bring about party unity. I mean, you were like, oh, my God, who, how, do we, can we trust these results? Who's, I mean, people wanted to see. The other thing, other than the balance, is Iowa gives you a barometer of what this state, Midwestern state, largely white state, thinks about the candidates. And we didn't get that last night either. We're, we're still counting the ballots. We give some idea. But they didn't get that. And so it's, it's confusion does not blend itself to part to uh, getting uh, who, who we're gonna, who's going to be the next nominee for the Democrats. So the Democrats yeah, are but, but, You know, you, you fundamentally have to remember, and we in San Francisco know this well, is that anytime there's a close election, chances are it's screwed up, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you get down to like, everything's close, and it's like, wow, it's like, you know, it, the, the ship's doing fine until the water gets narrow, and then all of a sudden you're scraping the hull, and everybody's bouncing around going, what's going on here? In Iowa, we they made a classic mistake, you know, or they reached. It was tech. It was an app. All right? It was state of the art. And everybody here has got a computer knows that crashes all the time, right? So, you know, we've gone from... Not the Chronicles app, for those of you. <laughs> but it was like, bring back the hanging Chad, you know? I, I, you know? Hold it up. Look. Look at the signature. You know, e- e- Voting is a human endeavor, and humans up, <laughs> and they made a mistake. They got an app, and it and it it stayed all night. Now, the 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 good part about it is, is that in California we don't have a statewide app. It's not statewide computers. It's split up between fifty plus counties, full of bureaucrats that just are kind of bored to stiff three hundred days of the year and five days of the year. They got to work like madhouse. But they're not all, you can't hack, you have to hack each and every one of them. So that's why when people talk about, well, the need for a national election, it's like, no, split it up. You can only screw up certain areas. There's only going to be one Broward County. It's not going to be national. And therefore, you can take a look at it. I think if Iowa had stayed simple, kept it to the basics, they would have had the results. Because like Joe said, there weren't that many that turned out. They could have probably sat and hand counted them pretty quick and got it done. <laughs> That's what they were doing. Or how about a Google Doc and let's share it? You know, like, Everybody like, get on a Slack channel. But there's but for the for perspective, there are 8,000 uh, districts, because we're not networked, like Phil said. Um, the Brennan Center, which is, does uh, reports like this, they said that it would take... Over the next five years, they estimate we need $5.5 billion worth of investment in our election system to bring it up to, to make it safer and up to, up to snuff. 
Um, the co Congress is, is, is fighting right now over to whether to allot 250 million. So there's really not the interest at the highest levels to do this. So Heather, um, when, when we were talking before, um, I brought up the issue of, and don't boo me, but electability. The electability <laughs> word. And like people hate this word, but clearly it was an issue in Iowa. And how, what, do you, what do you think voter, do voters even think about electability? Or are there still voters who are voting for the candidate who represents their best interests? I was reading about that today because I knew you were going to ask me. Um, and this is a well-planned show. <laughs> um, studies have shown that people, if they could wave their magic wand, will come up with their ideal candidate. But then when you ask them who is the most likely person to win, it's almost always a completely different picture from what they actually want. And so nobody really knows who's the most electable. The assumption has been Joe Biden because he's you know an older white guy who's familiar. But he came in fourth probably, right, in Iowa. So nobody really knows the answer to that question. And um, what drives me nuts is people saying that women are not electable. Um, just because we've never elected a woman president before doesn't mean we never would. And if we repeat that over and over and over, it's just kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I was talking to a dad at my kid's school the other day, and he was like, I just didn't like Hillary Clinton. And I was like, uh-huh, because she was a woman. And he said, Oh, no, it wasn't that. But I don't really like Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren either. <laughs> Coincidence. Yeah. It's, it's going to be the electability issue. It, it hangs out there. It's called, you know, winning at what cost or how are we going to do it? I think the Democrats, I know the Democrats and independents because uh, Democrats are both the Democrats and independents. Just ask Bernie on Monday. He's one. On Tuesday, he's the other. But. One of the big questions is going to be the decision among that element of the Democratic Party, if you want to call it, or the movement, is what to do if Bernie doesn't get the nomination. And that crosses over to all the candidates and electability. As we said earlier, as Joe pointed out, Trump is doing a throwdown. I got 49. You got to beat it. Now, if Bernie doesn't get the nomination or is denied the nomination, or the feeling is that he was denied the nomination, or that the fix was in, like it was in 2016, do his supporters say, I'm just not voting? Okay? That becomes the big question. Because now Trump's 49 moves to 51. Or 52. Because if Bernie's 13, let's say hardcore, say no, or I'm going with a Stein or a Jill Stein or something like that. I'm not going to participate in this. I would rather have four more and then the revolution than eight of, of, of the middle land. Yeah. You're well, laughing, but, that, but more than the revolution. Then the, the revolution. revolution. <laughs> That's going to be one of the big questions. The, the other side is, and this is where Bloomberg comes in, is if the Bernie people walk and it's a Bloomberg, who can pull Republican and mid-voters who may agree with Trump in some ways, but are actually just looking for a calm way and they don't like him personally, can they bring in and make up for the difference? So that electability goes, one, you know, who can win? And other one is who, if they don't win the nomination, takes those votes home. So we have a question from the audience. Uh, uh, do you think this very primary system that we have that starts in Iowa and goes to New Hampshire and then like, Finally, eventually, it comes to California. Does that distort the democratic process of what we should be doing in these to pick candidates to go up against each other in the general? Yes. <laughs> That's why I write the questions. No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> I think starting with such a heavily white Midwest state um, distorts what the overall picture is going to be. And so, like Pete Buttigieg appears to have done great there, but then he has hardly any support so far in the African-American community. So will he be able to go the whole way? Maybe not. And uh, the 538 did a study in which they uh, broke down what state would be most reflective of the Democratic Party. And they did it by age and race and education. Number one state, Illinois. California, we always like to pat ourselves in the back and you know how diverse and blah, blah, blah we are. We are number 15. But that's because we are on one end of the spectrum compared to Illinois, which is more in the middle, right? Like geographically now, and politically. Culturally. Everything. Food-wise. 
But I mean, I, in the primaries, you're going to get hate mail from everyone in Chicago <laughs> yeah. about that food comment. You know, I've always found it fascinating, like the primaries, right? We have primary elections. Who pays for them? Right. But who are they for? The Democratic Party isn't answerable to anybody, right? They're not a government institution. The Republicans aren't. God knows they aren't. You're funding the Republican primary. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I mean, the fact is we have this primary system that's set up that we're funding through government to, for individual parties to decide who their candidates are. And then we have this ritual of starting out in small states, which are supposedly where you build up your organization and, you, and otherwise it's just billionaires that are go- billionaires that are going to be running for the presidency. But I mean, I don't understand why, Audrey, you're absolutely right. Why even have Iowa and New Hampshire? Why not stay? Okay, we got five states. Joe, what are the five states that really matter in this election? Ohio. Uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin. I'm sorry? Michigan. Yeah, Michigan. I'm sorry, Michigan. Uh, you can throw in a, maybe in North Carolina. and then uh, right, Let's you know, put them all in it. a hat and pick one and say, you're the first. Because you matter. You really represent what we're going up against and how it's going to be. Let's go there. Instead, we start with farmers, and then we move to farmers, and then we do this big blitz all across the country, right? That would, I know. And the one thing about the Iowa meltdown is that it's accelerated this process to get it off the leadoff spot. And and it's long overdue. I've covered these things a couple of times, and it's ridiculous. I came back, and I was like, why is this romanticized? Why is it romanticized that the way that they, this is the way we choose the president? And hopefully this is going to be ending after this year. I, I think that's a good, we, uh, we, we got another question before this event that, uh, that I want to throw in here. And it was, um, Jim Lehrer was, uh, evidently said that he never voted to maintain his journalistic impartiality. Do you guys vote? What do you think about Jim Lehrer not voting? I vote in every election, even the really small ones, and I love getting that I voted sticker and wearing it all day. I like to go to the actual ballot you know, polling place on election day and doing it then rather than from home. And I just think it's, um, it's fake to say that you would then not have an opinion just because you don't vote. You would still know who you're voting for, and you should always participate. I have, uh, my mom would take me to vote ever since I could walk. Um, and oh, so you were part of that. <laughs> <laughs> Pittsburgh, you know, you, you know you, gosh, she, I, I went into another thing and pulled some levers that she told me to. Um, and uh, she is a couple, she's 94. Uh, she broke her hip two years ago, or maybe it was, uh, yeah, it was two years ago. Um, she got my cousin to bust her out of the hospital to go vote for Connor Lamb. And she's in Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh. And, uh, and she's Republican. Uh, so that's where I, I'm, I vote every time. And uh, yes, and I am a declined to state voter. Um, I vote. I don't like to vote by mail because I like to go in the booth or in that thing. And I have a game I play with myself. I start at the top, you know, like the president and the Senate and work my way down. And I'm always trying to say, Phil, when is it going to run out of who you know anything about any of these people? <laughs> judges, judges. Which one? And I'm sitting there going, well, this is probably going to be, could be the biggest damn decision of your life. Who knows if you're going to appear in front of one of these people, you know, or some, or school board. I don't know any of these people. So I always go down and hit that. I mean, point. that's really bad, though, if you don't know these no, people. No, there, there's so many. I can't figure it out. What the this district? What? What? Okay, so I'm City just College saying, Board I, I hit, yeah, yeah, Community College Board. Eventually you go, I think that was the, was that the person that was in there? Or was that the other person? You know, so I hit that. Uh, as far as not voting goes, no, I vote. And one of the reasons is, is one of the things that we do and we want to play gotcha is, and you've seen it and read it. Joe Garofoli, he's running for mayor. And we just found out he hasn't voted in the last six elections, right? <laughs> so you're saying that we can expect your good, candidacy in the... <laughs> if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, you told me one of the first things you ever told me was, Audrey, you always vote the story. You're right. <laughs> Which is like, who's going to be the best story? That's a very cynical Phil thing to say. <laughs> uh, I've voted in every election, no matter how small, since I was 18... And I, I think this idea that journalists, I, I know a lot of journalists who don't vote because they have this idea and, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. But I think if we are arguably the most informed people about it, and it's impossible not to have biases, and we have lots of checks to make sure we're 
testing those biases in the newsroom all the time. Everybody has biases. It doesn't matter if you're a voter or not. You're going to have them. I think some people would be surprised what some biases in the newsroom are. Um, I'm registered decline to state for exactly you know, this reason, because I don't think anyone needs to know what my political leanings are. And I think a lot of journalists do that, but we have re registered Republicans in the newsroom too, in San Francisco. So um, it's, it's That's good, not so we can get all the Republican mail. Who are it's they? It's good I'll to get mail from both sides. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're listening to our live recording of Chronicle Chats Primary 2020. We'll be right back after this. All right, like let's let's move on to the candidates themselves. Phil, why do they not like us? Why are they not coming to California? We're a big state. I haven't I haven't seen them very much. They're at Manny's. Yes, that's true. Yeah. That's true. If they do come, they come here. Yeah. Okay. And they come and here with, they it's do, all political too. And they they come in. Uh, they have been here. We haven't paid much attention to them while they're here. It's kind of like, but no, the, the emphasis has been on Iowa, and it's been on. Uh, 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 New Hampshire on the early, and it's going to be kind of funny because whoever like like comes out ahead in Iowa and New Hampshire, with the exception of Bernie, who's been working an operation here for six years. I mean, you have to remember, Bernie Sanders has been running for president for six years. The others have only been doing it for a couple of years, some for a couple of months, some for a couple of weeks. Um, Michael Bloomberg, now Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> Did you notice that change? Mike. Mike. Hell of a lot more friendly there, Mike. Uh, not Michael, Mike. 20, 50 years, Michael, Michael, CEO Michael, Mayor Michael, now Mike. Okay. And we got Tom Steyer, but they're all over the airwaves because California's a huge market. You know, I mean, you could drive up and down this state all day, all night, but it's television. So we're seeing a lot of I like Mike ads, and we're seeing a lot of Tom, the end is near ads. Uh, and. <laughs> I mean, that guy's voice and everything. Joe, am I wrong? <laughs> it's the stare into the camera, too. It's the... Okay. <laughs> Here comes sunshine! <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, so we, we have that, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how fast they can move in California because it's like it's, like, it's two games of exhibition ball, and then wham, the Super Bowl. <laughs> right? Right. Well, the, the one th now, Bernie has been here a long time, and he's actually established 19 offices here. And that we don't see them, you know, coming around and shaking hands. They all come here behind closed doors to raise money, and then they get the hell out. Um, but uh, we have seen more uh, field offices here longer than we have in the past. Um, and Bernie Sanders has, uh, in particular, in the Latino communities, um, he has uh, established offices there. He's reached out in Spanish language. Uh, small group meetings and in, uh, uh, media and advertising. So, and, it, and it's paid off. He's ahead in the polls here uh, in California and he's far ahead in Latino voters, which are key. And, uh, and so that's the, so there is ground operations here. It's never going to be like New Hampshire, as Phil said. It's like it's a TV, it'll always be a TV state or whatever our next uh, media platform is of the future. So while we're on Bernie, what would a President Bernie mean for California? President Bernie is good of all the uh, Democratic candidates would be the biggest change. Um, many of the other candidates were already doing some of the things like Elizabeth Warren uh, is wants free preschool and, and, and such. We're, we're already trying that. Uh, Bernie would uh, wants Medicare for all within four years, which is a, with just a mind blowing uh, uh, pace of, of adopting to that program. We're still talking about Medicare for all here. Um, that's, uh, he wants to eliminate college debt. Uh, that would be, again, another mind-blowing change here. Uh, the person who is offering the least amount of change would be a Joe Biden, who is basically saying, well, you know, let's, let's stick with what we've got. We're going to have a little, so make some tweaks to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you can buy into Medicare and such. Um, and then, uh, and Buttigieg is a little bit he wants more structural change. He would consider even adding to the Supreme Court and such. But in terms of what we have in California, we're already to the left of, of the dial, as we know, uh, for, from a lot of these candidates. Phil, you look like you're not believing that. Well, yeah, because Joe's in politics and campaign and 
listens to the platforms, and I cover government, and so is Heather. That's where it's like the day after the election, you know, after the confetti's all landed. Yeah, and Joe so, just goes home and yeah, like, he goes home, yeah. pops another one, says, "Well, pulled him again." <laughs> Four more years. And then Heather and I walk in and go, oh, great, great, okay. The clown car pulled up and everybody popped out. And, and Joe's home popping up his feet. Uh, I mean, realistically, we've seen it with Obama. We've seen it with uh, uh, Trump. Uh, we've seen it, uh, we didn't see it so much with Bush because he really knew how to do it, okay? Uh, but the president comes in and says, I would really like this. I mean, last night I heard Donald Trump say, we're going to Mars. Okay, you heard that? He was going to put a woman on Mars. I mean, he got my seven-year-old's vote with that, for but, sure. Well, George Bush said we were going to Mars, too. Do you remember that? Oh, after that yeah, that. oh, yeah, that was one of his State of the Union ones. Right after we're going to cure AIDS in Africa, he said, we're going to Mars. And everybody said, really? He, we wound up in Iraq, but we were going to Mars. <laughs> They're both very sandy. Exactly. But, but, you know, the president gets in and says, what effect are they going to have on you? You go, well, first of all, they got to do something. And I'm not sure that, you know, the Senate's going to change or the House is going to change. And then once you get in, you say, I've got this idea for a whole new medical system. And it goes, oh, really? All right. That, was, that sounded good. Now, are we going to do it? That, that's a, there's a big gap between that. And, uh, you know, and most of what we are looking for in California aren't the big programs. We want the federal relief when the fires come. We want, you know, the, the, the ports dredged. We want the transportation dollars. That, you know, that is the day-to-day -day stuff that we're looking for from Cal for California. And even Trump's come through with that. So we have the big picture things that will be debated and we'll see it on, on television. And then we'll be in San Francisco doing our own thing. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like we... Um it's it's easy to say nothing. What's going to happen if any of these people are elected president? Nothing, because of the stasis of Congress. You know, if if, if nobody is uh, agreeing on anything, I mean, we saw last night the State of the Union when you when you're down to the the Speaker of the House and the President not shaking hands and not introducing each other, ripping up the speech, ripping up the speech. I mean, we're down to like really third grade <laughs> tactics here. Um, so, I mean, how do we expect, you know, uh, roads to be built and the, the high-speed rail to be built? Yeah. Uh, how do we expect any of those things to happen? But, you know, we're doing a series in the, in the Chronicle now about, you know, what if, if in a perfect world, if these guys have their perfect world, what would it look like? And, uh, you know, that's what I was referring to. But we might feel better. And that's not to be underestimated. Remember, because, you know, people, you know, or our allies here would, would feel better. Pardon? Our, or our allies. Right. But we would feel, you know, we would physically in California would probably feel better. You know, if, if Trump's there for another few, four years, uh, it's going to be tough. You know, it's going to be real tough. If somebody else is there, people will probably feel better. And there's something to be said about that. You feel like hope versus despair. That's big on the personal meter, right? Oh, there's this actually we went there's a con the conference of uh, psychologists here and mental, mental health professionals, I think it was last year. And there were nine different seminars on Trump, how Trump has affected people. And I talked to my therapist friends and they're like, it is. I was like, come on, really? And I was like, they said, yes, people are really their world is, is, is flowing. And it's not, you know, it's one thing if it's bougie people feeling that way. But, you know, think if you are affected uh, viscerally by his policies, you know, if you're an immigrant or such. I mean, that's that's another whole other ballgame. So, Heather, uh, you mentioned Elizabeth Warren first. So, what do you think that she's distanced herself enough from Bernie? Is it just a gender thing, do you think, at this point? People choosing between them? Or do you think that there's actually a chance for her? Um, I think there's a chance for her. I think um, she's attracting a lot of the kind of more moderate folks in San Francisco. I was just thinking that the um, Board of Supervisors has almost entirely divided between the progressives saying they're backing Bernie and they all tweet about it as if that's some huge thing for Bernie, that one supervisor is going to vote for him. But then uh, um, slightly less progressive, more moderates who are still obviously very liberal by the nation's standards are going for Elizabeth Warren. So it seems like that's kind of the divide in San Francisco that I'm seeing. And I think people are pretty excited about her candidacy. Well, you know, I want to ask you about another endorsement, and that was Mayor Breed's endorsement. I was very surprised that she came out for Mike Bloomberg so early and uh, actually at all, especially for a mayor who 
who the rap on her is that she's too tied in with the billionaires. And like, what did you make of that endorsement? I was really surprised. Um, She had first endorsed Kamala Harris, to be fair. But then when Kamala dropped out, she had to go somewhere else. And I kind of thought maybe she'd go for Warren. That seemed like maybe a natural fit to me Um, because everybody at City Hall, if they're endorsing someone, is going for Sanders or Warren. But um, for her to come out for the white male billionaire was pretty, one of the white male billionaires was pretty surprising. Um, (laughs) Be more specific, please. Yes. Um, She got such a knock for... um, endorsing a no vote on Prop C, which was to tax big businesses, including many of our billionaires, for um, to provide for homeless services. And that really landed her in hot water, I feel like, for her um, constituency in San Francisco. So to then again throw her weight behind a billionaire was just kind of random. So, so why did she do it? She, I don't know. People don't endorse <laughs> who they actually want to vote for, do they? I mean, yeah. a lot of mayors are lining up behind him. Yeah, I don't know lot, if he's he has you know, a lot of mayoral support. Mike Bloomberg, when he was Michael, <laughs> he started up this this foundation, and uh, it goes around and it has conferences uh, around the world, actually, uh, and uh, seminars and and works with mayors for transportation issues, homeless issues, uh, a whole host of issues. Uh, And most of the mayors in California have participated in that. Uh, Libby Shaft has gotten people from that to actually work for her and and these initiatives. So he is known to them, not as a billionaire, but as this person that's really involved with cities. And I think that that is why you're seeing Sam Licardo and you're seeing other people uh, get on the uh, the Bloomberg. The, you, to us, it's new. It's a billionaire. It's that picture is being painted by his opponents. For those who know him, this is a guy that's been against gun control, been for gun control, been for transit, for this, for that, early and big, for years. That, so they know a different Bloomberg than we do. I think some San Franciscans also are looking to New York City as a country that had a huge homeless crisis and is somewhat dealt with it at least better than we have. They have a right to shelter law, which means that everybody, um, that you're required to have a shelter bed for every, every homeless person in the city. But you're required to take it too, right? Yeah, so that's a difference. So here we cannot make someone take a shelter bed because there aren't any, and so then y- you can't do that. Um, so in San Francisco, there's a thousand people on the shelter waiting list every night. I just looked at it yesterday and there was an 80 year old at like number 20 on the list, which is just devastating. So it could be that maybe she saw something in, in how he ran New York city. I don't know. And, and, and I, we broke the story about Breed's, uh, endorsement and I, I asked her, I was like, well, wait, do you have any problem with him and being okay with stop and frisk for his entire, uh, mayoral candidate, mayoral term, three terms. Um, and he, he only apologized for it the week before he decided to run for president, which was really just cynical. Um, and she said, well, we had to talk about that. And, you know, I, I'm, I don't like it. And but, you know, I think he can win. And again, it comes back to electability. So with winning, his strategy is forget about the small states. We're going to focus on Super Tuesday. Is that a good strategy? Well, it sure as hell is an untested one. Uh, no one's ever done it before, but uh, it, it, it can only be done by someone who's worth $58 billion because he has, I think he's dropped, uh, my notes are th- $300 million on advertising so far, which is ridiculous, including about $31 million in California. Uh, for perspective, there's only been, uh, I think, $41 million spent on advertising, TV advertising in California. Uh, Ten of it is by Steyer. So... Two, the two billionaires have spent almost all the TV advertising in California so far, and then I think Bernie has the rest. They're not good ads either. I have to say, I don't think they're good ads. Do you think they're good ads? Uh, none have gone viral so far. <laughs> yes. Okay. okay, fair enough. Uh, so, Burej, uh one Iowa, the delegate count at least, who knows? I mean, are we still talking about Iowa? Um, what he he's got a huge following in the gay community, which is very politically active in San Francisco. Why is he not getting any traction here? He's got. I mean, he's uh, he's. Well, actually, like, I or, should say he's gotten all the tech people to do like selfies with him. It seems like so he he is he's, getting he's worked the that community hard here. in terms of fundraising. Twenty two percent of his money comes from California, but he's still like he's got pulling like seven percent here. He's not he's not resonating with voters, and part of it is. 
his his uh, demo is pretty much all white. I mean, he is getting pulling maybe two percent with black folks, and and in single digits with Latinos too. And this is a diverse state. You so, know, part of running, like it or not, a big part of running for president is politics. A good part of it is policy, and then the third component is pop phenomenon. JFK, PT 109, Profiles and Courage, Young, Charismatic, okay. Jimmy Carter, Peanut Farmer, Out of Nowhere, Honest, I Will Never Lie to You. Something people latched on to very early. Barack Obama, Dreams of My Father, I'm a Different Vibe, Post-Civil Rights, right? Hillary Clinton, First Woman President, okay? There's a, there's a certain pop phenomenon. Yeah, except that, she didn't win. Right, but she got the <laughs> nomination. Uh, the second time. The first time she didn't either. But you're talking about phenoms. You're something that, that grabs people's interest over and above the usual campaign. This time, this is more like when we wound up with John Kerry and uh, a few other great ones. Yeah. But we have Al Gore. A, you have a flat group that where none, the closest anybody's got to a phenomenon is Bernie Sanders. And that's by six years of work and district offices and supporting local causes and being out there. But there's not really a, 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 an instant thing when you say Elizabeth Warren, something doesn't click in your head, or, or Buttigieg, you say, okay, gay, maybe. Uh, but you're not getting that, that, uh, that pop phenomenon. to distinct, And that's why we're having everybody, you know, you've got the first place person with 25%, oh boy, you know, in his own party. Think of it about this time in the race in, uh, when Obama was running, he was filling up stadiums. He's getting massive crowds. Nobody is, is getting massive crowds yet. So I think uh, speaking of massive crowds, we would be remiss if we did not mention that the president is full on campaigning. If last night was not evidence of that, he had a ad during the Super Bowl, which I, I did you all see it? The Super Bowl ad. My jaw like hit the floor. I, I thought it was very interesting, very surprising. What what do you think about the president's campaign so far? <laughs> I thought it was very surprising too that he was highlighting an African American woman that he helped release from prison at the encouragement of Kim Kardashian. Um <laughs> Wasn't really where I thought he was going to go with his first big ad, but <laughs> no, no, you know, I wouldn't have put any money on that one in my Super Bowl pool. Um, and the, the ad was, I mean, there's a little bit of a fact uh, check on that, where he uh, there was a policy that the a criminal justice policy that came up, and he was um, he actually it, it, he gave he commuted her sentence before the policy went into effect. But you know, that is that said, it was a um, it was I thought it was a it was a powerful ad in some ways if you didn't know all that most black folks really oppose the president um but um i mean he is that's it was a, a bit of a curveball because it was outside his zone i guess he was apparently his son-in-law jared kushner was the one who really urged him to go that route with his first big ad and he really wants trump to be seen as popular in the black community which is very counterintuitive and not well, accurate to according to data yeah can we can we talk about local stuff? I'm sure, tired please. of the presidential election already. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the local election. The vacancy tax, Prop D. What is Prop D? Well, we all know from walking around the commercial districts of San Francisco, North Beach. Whoa, so many interesting Opa. sounds tonight. Um, <laughs> the Castro, North Beach, um, West Portal, so many of our big neighborhoods, you see vacancies on every block. And so... Um, the supervisors are really trying to figure out how to fill up those empty spaces because when one store closes, it, it's kind of a domino effect. And before long, you may have a neighborhood like we have some that are almost 20, 25 percent empty, which is not good for any of the remaining businesses or just the feel of the neighborhood. So Supervisor Peskin's idea is to tax landlords who keep those storefronts empty longer than 182. I don't know why that's the number days. Um, they would be taxed. Um, it's a formula based on the square footage of the length of the front of the store. And so, um, and it goes up the longer you keep your storefront empty. Um, the thinking is that it's all the landlord's fault and that they're holding out for higher rents. It's obviously a lot more complicated than that. With the Amazon effect, a lot of people are buying their um, goods online and they're just not going to local stores as much as they used to. Plus, um, it's so hard to get a permit to do anything in San Francisco um, to open 
anything can take years. And so some ways that City Hall could make that easier, they're not doing. <laughs> they're just going to put it on the landlord. But to be fair, a lot of landlords are um, making their rents just obscene. I interviewed the um, owner of the Haight-Ashbury Music Center who closed his store on Haight Street a couple of weeks ago after 40 years in business in the neighborhood. And his um, rent had just gone up and up and up to the point where the landlord was now going to charge him 15000 per month just for this little store on Haight Street. And he just doesn't make enough. And when you take into account how much it costs to pay staff, um, especially with our high minimum wage and everything else, it just didn't pencil out anymore. And he now sells a lot of his um, instruments and um, books and things online, and he's maintaining a storefront in Redwood City where it's a lot cheaper. So that's his plan. You know, you you said it's the Amazon effect, and and that's no doubt partially true. But I go to Boston, I go to New York, I go to other places. They do not have the vacancies that we have. It's they're still expensive cities. Phil, do we just have too much retail space in this town? Well, we for years we've you, you've seen all these new buildings go up. They're beautiful, aren't they? And uh, always on the floor there is. Uh, He's going like, to sell you all a condo now. <laughs> they're beautiful. This they're is just, a timeshare. They're, 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 they're time wonderful share. architectural wonders that are pleasing to the eyes, you know. Uh, and and they're so different, you know. I mean. Turn left at the one that looks like the one before it, okay? I mean, you drive down the streets these days, and, like, you go down Bryant or something, you go, where am I? I mean, I, I can't remember where to turn because the gas station's gone, and there's another one that looks the same with retail space on the ground. Because everybody, to get approval for everything else, had to agree to retail space on the ground, right? Everything is retail on the ground, upstairs on the top. So we've created all these stretches of retail. Well, of course... Nobody's there to fill them. And that also creates a, a new, um, and as uh, Heather pointed out, okay, uh, we have problems with high rents. And then she listed 15 other things. Well, if the insurance for the office is too much. Uh, it takes me two years to get a building permit in here. I forgot to mention the chain restrictions uh, as And there's well. a chain restriction. If I own nine or more of these anywhere else, I can't go into that neighborhood. Uh, and, and also I'm going to probably need the supervisor's approval to get through the process. So if he's got three friends that are running the same kind of business with me, except for coffee shops, which seem to be allowed anywhere and everywhere, right? <laughs> but none that offer really I think awesome you go one block on right, Wednesday exactly. nights. That's okay. But everything else has to sort of be, does it really fit in with the community, right? With the neighborhood. And then at the end, after they have screwed it up royally, as opposed to a Boston where you just walk in and say, I need it done. Um, uh, Here's a couple of bucks. Uh, <laughs> I mean, apparently last, that's happening here too. That's what it is. Too, but you get it done. Um, what happens is, 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 is the board of supervisors says, "Oh wow, we really screwed this up." And as, as Heather pointed out, and there's all these problems, including us. What should we do? Blame it on the landlords and tax them. Okay. I mean, I've never not, heard the board of supervisors say they screwed anything up. Have you? Right. <laughs> no. Well, no. But they'll say, "Let's let's and so let's tax it." That's two things people really like: tax the landlord. Okay, is it going to solve the problem? No. They admit it in, in private, right? They said, well, I don't know, I'm not really sure that's going to solve These the problem. These rents are insane. That they're they expecting are insane. people, a bookstore to pay $15,000 a month. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of books. It's a, I, I knew a guy that was at a, a shoe store on Union Square, and his rent went up to $100,000 a month. Okay. That's not true. Seriously? It is. $100,000 yeah. a month for a shoe shine place? No, a shoe store. A shoe. Okay, well. <laughs> what kind of now, shoes were the they shoes selling? went for, you know, six, seven hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars a piece either. It was Arthur Barron. You know, a high, very high-end, legendary store. And eventually he was right on Stockton, and it just it just kept going up and up and up. It went vacant for a while. Somebody else comes in. They're not I'm not sure how they're gonna start long they're gonna stay there. But you're, you're even seeing, when, you know, when Gucci and Hermes is moving down a block because they can't make the rent, that's, that's it. Stores are also um, really frustrated by the street conditions in San Francisco. Um, another hate store that I talked to was Ambiance, which is closing, having a big sale. If any of you ladies like their clothes. Um, but they were just saying it's so, they have stores in the Inner Sunset in Noe Valley as well, which are doing great. But they said their hate shop has just been suffering for a long time. There's been construction on the street for Oh, yeah, because like we're putting in, years. we're making the street better. Yeah. So they've um, lost their parking and people can't stop there anymore. Nobody and parks the, on hate street to go shopping <laughs> at Ambiance. <laughs> 
But then that's they sure, and that's why there's not going to be an ambiance. Yeah. <laughs> they open up their shop in the morning and have to move an encampment out every single time, and so they just there's so many other issues that are going on in the city that aren't related to you know one tax on one landlord. Yeah, some somebody graffitis the front of your store, they come around and ticket you, right? You have a certain amount of time, even your house. They hit your garage door, it's you. It's, it's going to be interesting, though, Audrey. One of the things is because people, you, you put a lot of stuff together and they're just not shopping the way they used to. So watch out Union Square in, in, in the next 10 years. You're going to see that turned into hotels and condos. It's going to be a residential neighborhood more because people will say, I will pay big bucks to have a view of Union Square Basically, and a subway stop and a subway stop that will take me down to my tech job south of market because the central subway will do that. So the whole city is going to change like that. Union Square is exempt from this vacancy tax. But I should also say we have a voter guide on sfchronicle.com. It explains the pro and cons on both sides of all of these issues. It also has our editorial board's endorsements. The editorial board is separate. It actually does not report to me. It reports directly to the publisher. They make independent decisions, suggestions about how you should vote, and you can check it out there. The The second one I wanted to ask you about, Heather, mm-hmm. is the office and affordable growth measure. I'm what pulling is- up my notes because this one's really complicated. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, basically, it, it would restrict office development, new office development, if we don't build enough affordable housing. Yes, we would have to. um, She's scrolling through photos (laughs) of her kid and like screenshots (laughs) of her notes. (laughs) For some, all the numbers they pick are so random. That's why I can't remember them. We would, the city would have to build 2,042 units a year of affordable housing to keep building office space at the same rate we are now. And if we don't build affordable housing at that rate, then office space could not be built as quickly as it is. I think that's right. <laughs> yes. Phil, haven't we done this before? Tried to restrict Prop office M. development? Yeah. yeah. Or tie it to things. Uh, in this case, you know, Prop M, for those of you who were here, remember there was the big fight about, you know, the skyline and shadowing. Uh, yeah, yeah 40 that years started ago. a long time ago. You remember that, Jim? And, and it was, uh, it was it, it, but here's the, the dirty little secret of it. He's like, this time the mayor went around and said, okay, you people are against it. Do you want to mount a campaign to, to oppose it? And people said, no, I got my building. No, I got my building. If anything, this will make my building worth more because I got mine. I built it already. So nobody was willing to put up any money to fight it. And that was the case back in the high rise 40 years ago when Walter Shorenstein had his buildings all built. And there was, yeah, we can we can put limits on it. Yeah, sure. Sure. Why not? Because I got mine. You know, Mission Bay was a big tough fight to have because the downtown business office buildings didn't want the competition. So you go, yeah, this makes sense. You got the progressives. They want to do that. Sure. Fine. You know, I don't have to build any housing. My building goes up in value because there's not going to be another one out there. It's a wonderful world. It's called a win-win. Joe, we're, we're, we only have like five minutes left, and I want to talk to you about one thing that seems to be a very clear trend in this election everywhere, which is San Francisco versus the rest of the world. Um, you know, it's interesting... Today, I was talking to our, our, our digital team, our audience team, and stories, stories about like Pelosi and national politics actually don't do very well on our website. Stories about us versus everybody else or everybody else picking on us and that fight do really well. And, and, and it was really interesting to me because I think um, we see it, sometimes we see it as like Fox News doing the like, you know, close up of the poop on, you know, near the cable car turnaround. But it's also, we kind of thrive on it, too. So is this going to be a trend throughout the rest of the year? Oh, absolutely. And we saw the president had a couple name checks in the State of the Union on on us uh, last night in California. Um, And it is, it's visual, it's uh, it's visceral, it works. But it's been going on for a long time. I mean, uh, it's been going back to the early days of uh, Fox News when O'Reilly would would always talk about it, uh, San Francisco... Newt Gingrich talked about San Francisco values. I asked him years later, I said, what is San Francisco values? Can you define it? And he goes, Nancy Pelosi. 
And I go, well, that's not a value. That's a, that's a person. Well, I, and then he told me this long, stem-winding story about cross-dressing nuns. I think it was the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And I was like, that's, that's not San Francisco values. But anyways, but we're going to continue... Um, it totally is. I love God, the sisters. Of, it God is, it bless is part of the San Francisco sisters values. of perpetual yes. indulgence. I, it is. It's in some ways, but but Phil, you have a good take. We because we were talking about this the other day. Yeah, and it's going to switch. We had San Francisco values, right? And the Nancy Pelosi and the sisters of perpetual indulgence and all that. That was San Francisco values or smoke pot and all this other stuff. Okay, this I suspect that this cycle, it's going to go from San Francisco values to San Francisco visuals. Or failures, yeah. The poop pictures? It's They're going to pick up Heather's story about the 80-year-old man who can't find a shelter bed. They're going to quote her. You can see the pull quote coming out. 80 years old, and he couldn't find shelter in San Francisco. Then they'll have the montage, right, of the pictures of the streets. They'll pick out the stories about, they're not going to mess with corruption. Yeah, they might bring in corruption, but they're going to have people openly shooting the drugs on our streets. Things that we're kind of used to, <laughs> but they will run that camera through here with a heavy voiceover and say, this is what the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi want for your city. And it's going to be a picture and your quote and your story. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> So if you don't like Trump, you can blame Heather at the end of the, this. That's, that's the takeaway from It drives me crazy how selective they are, I just have to say. So my husband's from England. My in-laws were just here. They went hiking every day. My father-in-law's a sailor. He went sailing in the bay, out to great restaurants, you know, to the beaches, had a great time. They go home, and the Sunday Mail big story is dystopia in San Francisco. Why someone in London is even writing about it in the first place, I don't know. But it went on and on about the poop and the needles. And I was like, this doesn't jibe with your trip. No, but it jibes with your <laughs> columns. <laughs> I write good stuff, too. I do the good and the bad. But, but the, the effectiveness of it is not, is not very good. Nancy Pelosi starred, quote-unquote, uh, in many House Republican ads in 2018, I mean, she was the she was the boogie woman in a lot of these ads. Uh, one one guy in the Central Valley, Josh Harder, the, the, his opponent, uh, his Republican opponent, had a, a cartoon of Pelosi and Harder driving down the freeway with with cash spewing out of the back of the car. The Harder one. So um, it's it's she's such a cartoon, and and the San Francisco stuff is such a cartoon. You're not going to be moving voters in the middle, the movable voters. You're again. Going back to the base election. All right, last question. And this is, I think, the most important and the one we should all be concerned about. How can we get more people to get out and vote? Well, the one question that stumps them. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was stumped about that. Um, but I, and it went back to the voter turnout in Iowa the other day. Um, voter turnout was good when there was a compelling figure. When there was Obama was a compelling figure, you know, uh, you got a high turnout when there's a compelling figure. Pop phenomenon. Uh, pop phenomenon, whatever you want to call it. Um, there was the, it was low in <laughs> the lowest was in 2000 in Iowa when the candidates were the scintillating Al Gore and Bill Bradley, you know, but so that's, that drives it. That box office, as this man tells me all the time, you know, it's, it's, you gotta, you gotta have a show. Yeah, like it or not, you know, it started with George Washington looking good on a horse. <laughs> Honest Abe coming out. I mean, it's, I'm sorry. And, and, and it's, it's a fact. It's, it's, it's not a pretty part of our history, but yeah, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's sold. So, so we, we, you know, I like Ike, uh, Kennedy, New Age. Uh, I'm honest, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> all those things. And then, you know, the inverse of that was Donald J. Trump, who said, yeah, I can do it too. And so, yes, the only guy that sort of defied it all was Nixon. And, you know, I mean, ugly and all that other stuff, and he won. But I would say you vote or turn out because you feel and you're informed. And one of the best ways to be informed about stuff going around here is to read Heather. But read all of her. Now okay? you're being nice no, to me. No, read all of her. Because the other side only picks out, in politics, they only pick out what they want you to know, and it's up to you to know the whole story, and instinctively you do. And besides, it's fun to vote. You get a sticker. Heather, you get the last word, I think. Oh, my goodness. Go out and vote, everybody, and subscribe to The Chronicle. Oh.
Yes, yes. Well, I would like to thank my colleagues. It's such a treat to get to go to the newsroom every day and get to speak to you all. Um, thank you to the man in the back who was writing down when Phil used a four-letter word so we can bleep it out of the podcast. Oh, no, 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 we like that. The cachet of the sticker. We got the warning label on it. And thanks to all of you for the being King. here tonight. Have a good night. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.